Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. Today we will journey with our heroes to the Celestial Toy Room, where they will do battle with the Celestial Toy Maker. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and giving our thoughts and score out of five for the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story, so to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Episode 1, The Celestial Toy Room. The Doctor tells Stephen to turn on the scanner so they can view their surroundings and maybe see what could be causing the Doctor's invisibility. It looks like the scanner is broken, but the Doctor points out that whatever is affecting him is also affecting the ship. Dodo suggests that they leave, but the Doctor tells her he is intangible as well as invisible and would not be able to pilot the ship. He then orders a reluctant Stephen to open the doors. Nearby, a man wearing oriental-style clothing exits a large dollhouse, carrying two dolls, a male and a female, with him. He places them on the floor, saying that they will be the entertainment for Stephen and Dodo, and watches them as they grow to full size. Outside the TARDIS, the Doctor has returned to normal, and they take in their unusual surroundings, which the Doctor says seems very familiar to him. Dodo suggests that they should leave, but the Doctor says that he feels like he has been brought here for a reason. They are in a large room filled with oversized toys and Stephen draws their attention to a screen set in the stomach of a large robot toy showing images of him in their past adventures. The Doctor announces that he knows where they are and is in the domain of the Celestial Toy Maker. He takes Stephen away from the screen which was only showing him images in an attempt to hypnotise him. He informs them that the Toy Maker is a force of evil who likes to treat people as his playthings. Suddenly the TARDIS disappears and the Toy Maker stands in its place. Dodo asks where the TARDIS went and the Toy Maker tries to ensnare her with the screen but the Doctor intervenes, telling her and Stephen that they need to be on their guard. The Toymaker then takes the Doctor away with him, leaving Stephen and Dodo alone in the room with the newly arrived clown dolls. They play pranks on the duo, squirting them with water from flowers and knocking them over. The Toymaker returns and Stephen demands to know where the Doctor is. The Toymaker says that he has taken the Doctor away with him to play a game, but informs Stephen that he and Dodo are to play a game of their own in order to find the TARDIS and leave. The only snag is that the Toymaker has several copies of the TARDIS, so they will have to play until they find the real one. Otherwise, they will have to stay as his prisoners forever. Toymaker leaves as the game commences, and it's Blind Man's Bluff. The Toymaker returns to the Doctor, saying that he is happy to see him again since their previous encounter was so short. The Doctor comments that the Toymaker is like a spider, luring victims into his domain. The Toymaker takes offence to this, saying that he gives people a fair chance to win games he presents them. He says he can't be blamed for the Doctor's own innate curiosity, which caused him to leave the TARDIS when he saw the external view screen appear to be blank. He also says that the Doctor's mind has become dull and lazy, which also contributed to his capture. Indignant at this, the Doctor agrees to play his game, which delights the Toymaker, who says that he has become bored as he has not found a worthy opponent yet. He presents the Doctor with the Trilogic game. The game board has three points on it, with a tower of ten blocks in decreasing size on the first point. The Doctor must rearrange the tower on the third point within 1023 moves, but he is only allowed to move one block at a time, and is not allowed to place a larger block on top of a smaller one. The Toymaker also informs him of the game that Stephen and Dodo are playing for the TARDIS. Back in the toy room, the male clown, whose name is Joey, is setting up an obstacle course for the game while the female clown, Clara, explains the rules to Stephen and Dodo. Both teams will attempt to cross the room without falling over the obstacles. One person will be blindfolded and they will be guarded by the other person, who is placed in a soundproof boot and only able to communicate via a series of directional buzzers. The Doctor tries to warn his companions of the severity of the game, but the Toymaker punishes him by advancing his move counter and rendering him invisible and intangible again, except for one hand, so that he can still play the game. Joey goes first and seems to cross the room with ease. Stephen does his best to memorise the layout of the room before starting, and Dodo is placed in the boot. 
As Stephen starts the course, Joey moves the obstacles around, and Dodo's attempts to warm him are useless due to the soundproofing of the boot. Stephen slowly makes his way through the course, constantly having to deal with an interfering Joey. He makes his way through the final obstacle, a tube which he must crawl through, but Joey turns the tube around so that Stephen ends up at the start of the course again, and Clara proclaims that she and Joey have won. Stephen demands a rematch, and while he is arguing with Clara, Dodo grabs Joey's blindfold and shows that it is completely see-through. Stephen demands that they start again, and this time Joey uses Stephen's blindfold. He makes his way through the course again, but this time much slower, and eventually falls when he is trying to cross an obstacle. Both he and Clara return to their lifeless state, and the TARDIS appears in the room. Stephen and Dodo rush to it, and but they see that it is a fake. Inside, they find a riddle, saying, Four legs, no feet, of arms, no lack. It carries no burden on its back. Six deadly sisters, seven for choice, called the servants without voice. Stephen notices another door at the back of the TARDIS, and they head through it to face the next game. Episode 2, The Hall of Dolls Stephen and Dodo make their way through to the next room and they see on a monitor that the Doctor is currently on move 416 of his allotted 1023 moves. The Toymaker is enjoying himself and reminds the Doctor that they need to finish their games before the Doctor does. The Doctor again tries to send him a warning about the perils of the next game and the Toymaker punishes him by further removing his ability to speak until the second last move of the game and advancing his move counter again to 444. He then sends a new set of opponents against Stephen and Dodo, the Hart family. Stephen and Dodo observe three strange chairs in the new room, and they encounter the King and Queen of Hearts, who look like the characters from a deck of playing cards. Stephen thinks the riddle they were given might have something to do with the chairs, but they explore the room further. Meanwhile, the Knave of Hearts enters with the Joker, and the family starts to bicker. The Queen realises that Stephen and Dodo have left the room, and orders the King and the Knave to follow them with her. The companions arrive in another room with four more chairs, and Stephen is determined that they need to find the correct chair to sit on it as decreed by the riddle. Stephen wonders what would happen if he sat on one of them, but Dodo says that it could be dangerous due to the toy maker's malicious nature. Stephen points out that behind each chair is a cupboard that looks like the front of the TARDIS. He opens one of them and sees more dolls, this time representing heart soldiers and ballerinas. Stephen tries calling them like the last of the riddle, but it doesn't work and so moves the soldiers out of the cupboard manually. Dodo tries opening the last cupboard, but it won't open and instead closes the other ones that they have opened. The Queen and King arrive and they reveal that they too are victims of the Toymaker and that they are playing for their freedom. The Queen decides that they will each choose a doll and use them to test one chair each. Dodo objects, saying that they found the dolls and they should not have to give them to their opponents, but the Queen said it is the fairest thing to do as they should get one each. Dodo nearly mentions the cupboard with the ballerinas, but Stephen stops her and agrees to give the others a doll each to test the chair with. Stephen says that they will try the chairs in the other room and leaves the king and queen to their attempts. The king picks a chair at random and nearly sits on it himself until he is stopped by the queen. He places the doll in the chair instead and it is immediately enveloped by constricting metal bands and shaken violently until its head pops off. Stephen and Dodo enter the room and see the knave and the joker sleeping. Dodo tries to convince Stephen to cooperate with the hearts but he reminds her that they belong to the toy maker and that they need to still win at all their games before the doctor does in order to win their freedom. He tells Dodo to put her doll into a chair and it is immediately electrocuted. The knave wakes up and then takes off into the other room and Stephen places his doll in a chair which starts to spin around at an incredibly quick speed before hurling the doll into a wall where it is smashed to pieces. The knave arrives in the other room and the king tries to attempt him to try a chair before the queen intercedes. Instead he uses her doll and once it touches the chair both it and the doll completely disappear. They are down to the final two chairs and with no dolls left the king suggests that they use the joker and so they return to the first room. 
Stephen is examining the remaining chair in the first room to see if there is any obvious sign of a trap when Dodo alerts him to the arrival of the Hart family. Stephen says he will distract them whilst she goes and gets the remaining dolls to test in the other room and thereby find the safe chair. As Stephen and the King and Queen discuss how to try the remaining chair in this room, Dodo slips away unnoticed. The King nudges the Joker awake and Stephen tries to stop them from using him as a guinea pig. Dodo returns and says the cupboard is locked and the Queen overhears this and accuses them of cheating. Together the Hart family and the Joker move off leaving Stephen to calculate their odds of success. As he is doing this, Dodo sits in the remaining chair. The toy maker observes this and tells the doctor she has picked the wrong chair, one which will freeze her. Dodo begins to feel the effects of the chair immediately and Stephen, with great effort, manages to pull her free. Dodo then laments that they have lost the game. In the other room, the Joker is apprehensive to test the chair but is forced to pick one. However, he realises something sinister is about to happen when the knave starts to laugh and then runs off, followed by the knave who flees from the anger of the king. The king and the queen try to get each other to sit in a chair but eventually decide to sit in one together. At first nothing happens, but then the chair wraps itself around them, crushing them to death. The locked TARDIS opens its door to reveal itself to be another fake. Dodo says to try the last line of the riddle again, and this time he is answered by a ringing phone in the TARDIS. He answers it, and it is the toy maker, who congratulates them on their progress, but says that they need to hurry as the doctor is close to beating them, and gives them a new riddle to solve. Hunt the key to find the door that leads out onto the dancing floor. Then escape the rhythmic beat or you will forever tap your feet. Before they move on, Dodo calls the dolls again, and this time the ballerinas do respond. As they leave, they notice the king and queen have reverted back to their playing card form, just like the clowns earlier. Episode 3, The Dancing Floor The Toymaker commends the Doctor on his choice of companions, and chooses their next opponents from a book of fairy tales, Sergeant Rugg and Mrs Wiggs. At the door to the next room, Stephen and Dodo are trying to figure out how to open it. The ballerina dolls follow them and trap the travellers between them and the door. Thinking it is a trap, Stephen attempts to break through them, but the door opens and the dolls foil through it. Stephen and Dodo follow on after them into the room, which is a large kitchen. The dolls keep walking and go through a door on the opposite side of the room, which shuts behind them. Inside, they meet Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs, two Napoleonic-era personalities. Dodo tells them the next riddle in the hopes that they can help, and Mrs. Wiggs says the dancing floor is through the next door. Meanwhile, Stephen and Sergeant Rugg get into a measuring contest, but Mrs. Wiggs forbids them from fighting. Dodo chides Stephen, saying that he can't say that they are just toys and then complain about them messing with him. Dodo uses Sergeant Ruggs' honourable military nature against him, and he reveals that the kitchen is actually the first part of the riddle, and that they must locate the key for the door, which is hidden somewhere inside the kitchen. Meanwhile, the Doctor is delaying his moves in an attempt to stall for time, and the Toymaker punishes him by advancing his move counter first to number 770, and then to number 813. Back in the kitchen, Dodo comes across the sleeping form of the kitchen boy, and she notices a similarity between him and the Knave of Hearts. Stephen says that all the toys look similar to him, but they should focus their efforts on finding the key. Dodo tries again to flatter Sergeant Rugg to get him to help in the search, and he does so, earning the ire of Mrs. Wiggs. As they search through the various drawers and cupboards, Sergeant Rugg starts accidentally breaking Mrs. Wiggs' fine china, causing her to berate him. They bicker back and forth and start throwing food at each other and Stephen tells Dodo, who feels responsible for the commotion, not to fall for the distractions caused by the two. Meanwhile, the kitchen boy gets up and tries to hide with a tin of sultanas. Stephen spots him trying to leave the room when Dodo tries and fails to broker a piece between the two culinary combatants. He runs away and locks himself in the pantry after giving Stephen the tin, which proves to be empty. Dodo notices that Mrs. Wiggs appears to be very protective of a pie that Sergeant Ruggs is about to throw and suggests that maybe the key is inside it. 
Her theory proves to be true when Stephen wrestles with Sergeant Rogue for it and it falls to the ground, breaking apart and revealing the key. She and Stephen leave and the toy maker appears and berates the incompetence of the dolls. He orders them to follow after the companions and says that they must be stopped at all costs. He says if they fail, he will then destroy the two of them and then smashes a plate for emphasis. In the next room, Stephen and Dodo see the ballerinas dancing on top of a triangular platform in front of the TARDIS. The dolls finish their routine and Stephen goes to make his way to the TARDIS, but Dodo tells him to be cautious as it can't be as simple as that. She cites the last line of the riddle and he carefully holds his hand over the platform, causing the music to start again. It stops when he takes his hand away and Dodo repeats the process. Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs enter the room saying that they have come to join the ball and Stephen says that he will take his chance and tries to cross the platform but is immediately affected by the music and so starts the dance. He says that he can't stop as the dolls advance on him with one of them taking him in its grip and leading him around the dance floor. Dodo tries to help Stephen but Stephen's partner switches to her whilst another of the dolls partners with Stephen. Sergeant Rugg suggests that Mrs. Wiggs joins the dance and then with all the dolls occupied he should be free to run to the TARDIS. However, all the dolls change partners again and this time Stephen is paired with Dodo leaving the other two stuck with the dolls. They make it to the TARDIS only to discover that it is another fake. As they search for the next clue, Dodo and Stephen discuss the nature of their opponents and Dodo points out that even though they seem to be at the whim of the toy maker, they also seem to have some semblance of free will which accounts for the human errors that they have made that led to the losing of the games. In his game room, the toy maker tells the doctor not to celebrate too quickly as he points out that Stephen and Dodo still need to find the real TARDIS before he finishes his game. He then chooses his next opponent for the companions, an innocent looking but mischievous schoolboy doll that he says will be their downfall. He reminds the doctor that he is only 123 moves remaining. Back at the TARDIS, Stephen locates the next riddle which reads, Lady Luck will show the way, win the game or here you'll stay. They make their way to the next room and Dodo recoils in horror at the sight of a spider. However, it is a prank spider and it belongs to the schoolboy who introduces himself as Cyril. He shocks Stephen with a hand buzzer, which he apologises for as he says that he admires them both a lot. Dodo points out the number representing the doctor's move counter and Stephen asks Cyril where the next game is. He says that it's in the next room, but they will be playing against him. Episode 4, The Final Test. The next game is revealed to be Tardis Hopscotch. The players must cross a series of 14 triangular platforms in order to reach the TARDIS on the opposite side of the room. Stephen and Dodo count as one person, so whoever reaches the TARDIS first wins the game. They will roll dice to see which triangle they land on, but Cyril warns them that the floor is electrified and if they fall off they will die. In the toy room, the toy maker gloats to the doctor that his friends are doomed as Cyril hates to lose. He then advances the move counter to number 930 and shows the doctor the beds in the dollhouse he specially prepared for Stephen and Dodo. In the hopscotch room, Dodo goes first after being given a one-step head start by Cyril and rolls a three, followed by Stephen who rolls a four. He is then told to go to triangle number seven, revealing the game to be more like snakes and ladders. This is further proven when Cyril says that if a player finishes on a triangle occupied by another player, then the first player must return to the starting point. He then rolls a two and on Dodo's next turn she rolls a three, landing Stephen back at the start. Once there, he is punished further by being forced to miss a turn. Meanwhile, the toy maker continues to gloat over the doctor's impending loss and grants him the ability to speak again. Cyril continues to try and throw a spanner in the works and when he tries to scare Dodo off her triangle, Stephen says that he has had enough of the game and tries to go to the TARDIS. He is stopped by the apparition of the toy maker, who blocks him from going forward and says that he must follow the rules. Stephen and Dodo are sent back to the start and Cyril continues to advance towards the finish line. Stephen rolls a six next and the chase begins again. The toy maker tries to antagonize the doctor further 
but it doesn't work, and so he advances the move counter to number 1000, making it a neck and neck race between the Doctor and his friends. Cyril gets to within one move of the TARDIS, but is forced to go back to triangle number 9. Once there, he says that he's badly injured his foot and shows that it is bleeding. Despite Stephen's protest that it is just a trick, Dodo goes to help him and finds out that he is faking it and the blood was actually just red ink. Dodo is forced to go back to the start for leaving her spot and must miss the next turn. Cyril rolls a 5 and loudly proclaims that he has won, but on his way to the TARDIS, he slips on a platform that he had previously sabotaged with slipping powder and is electrocuted, returning back to his original doll form, which is now completely destroyed. Stephen and Dodo finish off the game and arrive at the TARDIS. The Doctor completes the second last move and is returned to his normal form. However, before he finishes the game, he goes to join the others. He arrives just as Stephen confirms that it is the real TARDIS due to its distinctive hum. They decide to leave, but the Toymaker stops them, reminding the Doctor that if he loses, then he will take the others down with him in defeat. This confuses Stephen and Dodo, but the Doctor tells them to trust him. The Toymaker continues to taunt them, and when Stephen tries to attack him, his blows are turned back on himself. The Doctor tells him to go inside the TARDIS whilst he deals with the Toymaker. He turns down his offer of unmanageable power and tries to leave, only to find the Toymakers preventing them from actually leaving. The Doctor realises that in order to leave, he needs to completely finish his game, but if he makes the last move, then, then the Toymaker's realm will vanish, along with everything outside the TARDIS, including the Doctor himself. He goes back and tells the others of this predicament. He also explains the Toymaker has been beaten before, but due to being a cosmic entity, he is merely banished for a period of time before he returns with his realm fully rebuilt. Stephen offers to sacrifice himself to make the final move, but the Doctor refuses to entertain the idea. The Doctor suddenly has a brainwave and he agrees to complete the game. He tells Stephen to get the controls ready whilst he mimics the Toymaker's voice and issues a command for the final move to be made. Stephen takes off just as the last piece moves onto the top of the pile and the TARDIS dematerializes as the Toymaker's realm is destroyed. Despite knowing that they may encounter him again, the Travellers celebrate their victory with a bag of sweets that Dodo was earlier given by Cyril. However, it seems Cyril has found revenge from beyond the grave as when the Doctor bites into it, he howls in agony. End of the story. So that's it for the end of the summary recap. And we're now going to go over to Trisha's trivia corner. So over to you, Trish. <laughs> Thanks very much. So the air date for the Celestial Toymaker was the 2nd to the 23rd of April, 1966. The writer for this story is Brian Hales. This is the first Doctor Who writing credit for Brian, but it won't be his last. We'll be seeing five more stories from Brian, including The Smugglers, The Ice Warriors, The Seeds of Death, The Curse of Peladon, and The Monster of Peladon. That's Brian a, also... I was like, that's, that's a pretty impressive resume. It is, it is. And you could probably gather that he created a certain villain that becomes recurring. Yes. Um, Brian also adapted two of his stories for the Target novelization, those being The Ice Warriors and The Curse of Paladon. Brian passed away in 1978. The director for the story is Bill Sellers. This is Bill's only Doctor Who directing credit. He is best known for creating the soap opera Triangle and for producing all creatures great and small. Bill passed away back in 2018. Paddy, we have a new producer. Yay. Good. Go so long, terrible wilds era. <laughs> yes. Uh, new producer, Inns Lloyd. I'm guessing he's his name. I N N E S. Yeah, like I think I think it's Inns. Okay, Inns it is. Yeah. The original storyline for this serial was actually quite different and much more adult and satirical in scope. 
Which you can kind of imagine with the basic premise that you could make that really, really interesting. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, John Wiles decided to screw all that up by deliberately and out of spite overspending on the arc. So that Lloyd had very little budget in order to make this story. Another reason why I'm not a big fan of this person. It's like, you're like, fuck you from beyond the grave. (laughs) Yeah. At the time of recording this, only one episode from this story has been recovered, which is episode four. So again, we offer our thanks to the team over at Loose Cannon for their recreation. Thank you very much, as Mm -hmm. always. It was at one point considered that this would be a story to write out William Hartnell. We've discussed in the past how William Hartnell and John Wiles did not get on and John wanted William gone. He did not want him around anymore. So John's idea was that the Doctor would become invisible and then when he regains visibility later, he looks like somebody else. This was vetoed from this story. Mm. But you can see where certain future things yeah. are starting to, to come out. But um, I'm glad they didn't do it in this story because I want to see more of William Hartnell. But like, see, this is the thing now that this person, like, I... I don't know if, you know, producers, when they make these snap decisions, yes, decisions, um, will ever wonder about the legacy that they leave behind. Because, okay, presumably, maybe they thought that Doctor Who wouldn't be as huge a phenomenon as it actually is. Now, granted, the fact that at this point in time, it has a feature movie out and it's like all over, it's all over the UK. It's like one of the biggest things they have. As like, this is your legacy, a petulant fucking child. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's an interesting idea that I'm glad they do a different way oh. in Doctor Who proper. Yeah. Um, but with a dick move from Wilds to try and do it this way. Hmm. <sighs> Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. There were racial slurs in this show. Okay, let's, let's just address this head on. Mm-hmm. The King of Hearts recites a version of the counting rhyme, Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Yes. Which is used for selecting who is going to be it or who is out in a particular children's game. The original version, or a ver- I don't know if it's the original version, a version of this nursery rhyme includes the N-word in the second line. Where now we would say, catch a tiger by the toe. It was catch a yeah. N-word by the toe. Apparently, the use of this word was still considered acceptable by the BBC in 1966. Which, the use of that word is not acceptable ever. But when the BBC audio CD series was released, so a lot of these stories were released just as audio tracks, mm-hmm. um, it was obscured by placing part of Peter Purvis's narration over it. And it's sort of noted this was like in correspondence to modern views on the use of the N-word. Personally, I don't think 1966 is a good enough excuse to include it. I know that in the show, and you and I discussed this a little bit, it's funny because the eeny, meeny, miny, mo bit is kind of mumbled, so you can't really hear it properly. Mm. But then the N-word rings true really fucking clear. And it's like, and it's the last word before the scene transitions as well. Yeah, so that was a misstep. Mm. The other is the use of celestial. Now, this is not something I knew. So I assumed 
that the celestial toy maker is because this is a science fiction show and he is a celestial being. Uh, apparently incredibly powerful. He can survive his realm being destroyed. So he's not just a time lord, which we don't know. But he's not like the doctor's species like the monk was. He is this hmm. higher being. And that's what I assumed the word celestial meant. Now, I had known of his outfit, which you described in the summary as being oriental looking, hmm. shall we say. But I didn't realize that celestial is actually a racial slur used to describe the Chinese. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's like I first heard of it like in like old like well I won't say old westerns but in 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 westerns more so than kind of modern westerns uh, westwinds uh, mo- modern uh, westerns like uh, Deadwood, which is a fantastic show. Uh, no, but see, this is the thing, right? Is that so? Uh, Michael Goff, who we'll get into in a while, he is the celestial toy maker. Yeah. No, Michael Goff is not Asian. No, but he's not made. To physically look Asian, there's no application of yellow face. There's no of the heightening of the eyebrows like there was would have been in Marco Polo. He's Caucasian wearing Oriental style clothing. Yeah. So, so there is an argument, and I've like I've seen it on uh, various different threads as to does the celestial mean is it a racial slur or is it the fact he's a celestial entity? Yeah, if it wasn't for the fact that he was wearing oriental clothes, I would let them get away with it and assume that they just meant a celestial entity. The fact that he's wearing oriental clothes, though, I mean, yeah, that's sort of hitting the nail on the head. And also, like, because I looked this up because, again, I I was curious to see because I didn't know that celestial was a slur in in that context. Hmm. So I looked it up and, again, looking through, like, different blogs and stuff online... You know, people have considered that like when he is advancing the move counter in particularly, his voice takes on a particular tone that is a very sort of stereotypical Asian clipped way of speaking English. Hmm. And they were like, was he meant to be? And they just didn't do it full force. So regardless, people have identified it as being a slur when you have the title in conjunction with what he's wearing. Yeah. Which means that not only are there racial slurs in the show itself, but also in the title, mm. The Celestial Toymaker. And in the uh, Facebook fan group that we're both members of, there has been, um, like there was, there was a debate as to kind of, oh, which ones, which missing stories would you like to see part of the next batch of animated ones? And a lot of people, they don't want to see this one come back into animation. And I can understand where they're coming from in terms of, you know, like especially, definitely with the N-word, I can see that all right. But we've had this discussion before about if something, like you, when something is done in and of the time that it's in, it's tough to add modern standards to it. And by, I think, by ignoring it or trying to, like, push it off to the side, you're not going to learn anything from it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've seen online with that conversation is it doesn't matter if the BBC didn't see a problem with it in 1966. Mm. It was a problem in 1966, and they shouldn't have done it. Mm. But to your point, you know how can we grow and learn from things if we try to pretend that they never happened so and like 
the, I think the kind of the big thing about the use of that word in this particular context is that at this point in time, like Doctor Who is still very much a family orientated show. Mm. It's not like, say, some shows in America, which are past the watershed, where the word might be used because it's more for adult viewing. I don't I don't know if that makes it worse, though, because you're including slurs in a children's program. No, that that's what I'm saying. Like, it, like, like it is it is worse because of the fact that you're applying it into oh. a children's show. Oh, I'm, I'm just saying, like, of the, the, like, if you're going to use it in programming for whatever reason, make sure that it's used in an appropriate program as opposed to a children's program. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Yeah. From that, because. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a particularly nice area to talk about when we're talking about Doctor Who. <laughs> like, no, it's not. You may have gathered from Paddy's recap that William Hartnell was on holiday for the recording of The Hall of Dolls and The Dancing Floor. And so the Doctor's appearance during the Trilogic game scenes is pre-recorded audio and a disembodied right hand, which isn't actually William Hartnell's hand. It's an extra wearing the Doctor's ring for both of those episodes. The TARDIS wiki, which is a very helpful resource where I get a lot of this information, not going to lie, has an interesting trivia tidbit around the Trilogic game. By the way, the Trilogic game, for anyone who's having an issue visualising it, is do you know that game that you get for little children where you've got like three, three poles and you've got little rings on them and you have to move them from one to the other? That's basically what it is, except you've got ten things to move, which is actually really, really freaking hard. Anyway, once this show was finished filming, the Trilogic game prop was given to Peter Purvis. And he thought that this was great and he thought it was really cool because, you know, Stephen was becoming more prominent in the show and he thought it was a really nice thing for him to take away from the show. Unfortunately, when he eventually left Doctor Who, Peters endured a year and a half without any work (laughs) and came to see the Trilogic game prop as the source of his bad luck. (laughs) He finally got rid of it. And the following day, got a role in Zed Cars. And shortly thereafter, he got his presenter role on Blue Peter, which he's most well known for outside of Doctor Who. So the fact that like this trilogic game was cursed. <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's what he felt like. <laughs> I find hilariously funny. On to the cast. So Paddy has already mentioned that the Celestial Toymaker is played by Michael Goch. Is it Goch or Gro? Goff. What? It's pronounced Goff. Goff. Yeah. Thank you. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits from Michael. We will see him again, though I must point out in a different role in Arc of Infinity. The Celestial Toymaker was due to return in the Nightmare Fair, and Michael Goff was approached to reprise his role, but this was never made due to the unexpected postponement of the series for 18 months so it was meant to be made he was meant to be involved then it got delayed for a year and a half and it didn't happen outside of who michael is best known for playing alfred i've written down on my notes for playing batman he didn't play batman he played alfred i'm an idiot michael is best known for playing alfred in batman batman returns batman forever and batman and robin i knew he looked familiar and i couldn't pinpoint where that was my first introduction to Michael Goff. And I was like, oh, like he always, his Alfred is just so nice and sweet and kind and everything. And then I watched a movie called The Boys from Brazil. And he's in it for a short amount of time. And he's an absolute asshole in it. 
Like he, <laughs> like he, he dies, and uh, like it's part of a huge plot, and it's like he, he dies anyway. And I'm like, I'm not used to. It's like you're not when you're not used to seeing an actor that you like play a bad guy. It's weird. It's unsettling. It's just David Tennant in anything other than Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, see, and see, that was the thing. I didn't see him as Barty Crouch until after I watched Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. With the weird tongue thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael was actually married to future companion Annika Wills for 17 years. Mm. So we have more sort of pointy out that there are only really 10 actors in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they all know each other. Michael passed away back in 2011. Now... Joey the Clown, the King of Hearts, and Sergeant Rugg are all played by Campbell Singer. The Celestial Toymaker is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Campbell, outside of who his other works include The Man Who Was Thursday, The Trials of Oscar Wilde, Coronation Street, Zed Cars, Yay. <laughs> Dad's Army, and some others do have him. Campbell passed away in 1976. Clara the Clown, Queen of Hearts, and Mrs. Wig are all played by Carmen Silvera. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Carmen. She also appeared as Ruth in the third Doctor story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And I knew I didn't like her for reasons beyond just her being a clown. (laughs) A picture of Carmen as Clara the Clown also appears in the second season Sarah Jane Adventure story, The Day of the Clown. Which I didn't realise and now I need to go back and very carefully try and watch that for reasons that we will get to later. Outside of Doctor Who, Carmen is best known for her role as Edith in Allo Allo. Is that your... Because I, I haven't seen a huge pile of Allo Allo, but that's your man's wife, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen a whole pile of... I, I watched it a lot as a kid because it was on yeah, like, but, UK like, TV. And like, you, you know the whole stuff of, you know, good mooning. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> the um, but yeah, I think... Yeah, I think, she, I think she's like the main female character. I think. Carmen passed away back in 2002. Cyril, the kitchen boy and the knave of hearts, are played by Peter Stevens. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Peter. He also appears in The Underwater Menace. His other acting credits include Canterbury Tales, Mr. Digby Darling, The Avengers, United and The Men from Room 13. Peter passed away in 1972. Lastly, we have the Joker, who's played by Reg Lever. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Reg. His non-Who acting credits include All Creatures Great and Small, Doomwatch, and Zed Cars. Ding. Reg passed away in 1985. Can we include like All Creatures Great and Small now on our bingo card? Because it's come up, not to the same extent as Zed Cars and the Avengers, but it's come up a bit. Okay, so we now have triple ding. We have... Zed Cars, The Avengers, and All Creatures Great and Small. Yeah. Shane, update your bingo, bingo card. card. Yeah, exactly. An interesting trivia section there. Certainly highlighting things that maybe some people weren't aware of within Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. But now we're on to the meat and bones of every time-traveling team episode the character discussion so Paddy I'm going to pass it to you for the Doctor what did you think of the Doctor in the story so a couple of weeks ago for the massacre I already used my Doctor Where joke so I'm not going to rehash that um, so like we always said about like, you know, the Doctor having a presence in the stories and literally he did only just have a presence in this 
it's hard to talk about anything in the Doctor in relation to this, like because he's only realistically in it for like half an episode. You yeah, look, yeah. If, like, if you were to add the beginning of episode one and yeah, the end of episode yeah. four, so like the only thing that you can say about William Hartnell again is just like when he's fully tangible again, it's just like that, you know, James Bond esque cucumber coolness in face of an absolute terrifying lit god because like the the toy maker is like he's a cosmic entity like he's a god essentially like but what i love i know I, I think it's the way that hartnell has portrayed the doctor in all the stories up until this point in time that even when he's silent the toy maker has to act against a non-presence and the way he acts is coming from like the complete sass and attitude that the first doctor would give if he was vocal so i can imagine as well like you know which um you know he's only got one hand there i can imagine with the other hand there's a lot of you know like <laughs> like rude hand gestures <laughs> coming along i love the way like no one can see this except yeah. you and me yeah and so instead of describing it you just gave me the fucking finger like. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly and it's just like um like that's I can't really say anything about it because he's literally like he's only contribution to it is that last 15 minutes of the final episode whereas he's just like staring down the barrel of a gun type thing yeah I mean I've mentioned in previous stories I am not a fan of the doctor being made a minor character this season I didn't like it in any of the other stories we've discussed and I don't like it here I think the reason why it bothers me so much in this story is, and it bothers me in a different way than it bothered me. The massacre bothered me because, I mean, I was you know perfectly happy for the Doctor to not be in it, but they never fucking explained it. Mm. Yeah, because we still got to see William Hartnell as the abbot, and that was still kind of cool, but they never explained where the fuck he went. So yeah. that's why that bothered me. The reason why it bothered me here is because it was really sloppy writing to give Hartnell... A holiday like he's taken holidays before and we never complained about him not being there it was never mm. an issue but i think the reason i bother me so much here is because i loved the moments we got between the doctor and the celestial toy maker i loved their back and forth it really reminded me of picard and q oh like it's picard and q it's um move along home from deep space nine we'll uh, get to that in a bit and <laughs> <laughs> um, as well to go a bit more um, I suppose you could say not, I won't say avant-garde because that's probably the wrong use of it but uh, the movie The Seventh Seal of the Knight versus Death yeah. in, the, in the chess match yeah definitely and like but the back and forth between the Doctor and the Celestial Toymaker it was so good and I wanted to see more of that you know more of the Hartnell wish that we've come to love and the challenging nature I think it was very interesting to see a place and a person from the Doctor's past and I really want to know more about the previous interactions the Doctor had in this place. I don't think I'm ever going to find that out, but I would be really interested to see it. The one thing, like I said, though, is that he's hardly in it. Like, when I was first watching this, I sort of write my notes as sort of a string of consciousness as I'm watching it. And I have in here an entire story where the Doctor is invisible and mute. Hartnell better have been on holidays. (laughs) Which he was. But, like... This is now a second story in this season where Hartnell is missing for half of it. Hmm. And, or where the Doctor, rather, because Hartnell was in, that's the abbot, but where the Doctor is missing for half of it. 
and you know you and i have discussed before that originally like when i first got into doctor who and i watched the Hartnell era i only watched like the first what 16 stories and i was watching it for ian and barbara i am now 100 percent watching it for Hartnell, and so i get mm. really odd when he's not there because he's the reason why i want to watch it yeah and like i we've seen before like as well like that actors had pre-filmed inserts when they were going on holiday mm. So I do, and because the Doctor is so separated from the companions in this, I don't see why they couldn't have done pre-filmed inserts. But I'm putting this entirely down to John Wiles being an absolute asshole. Yeah, although John Wiles didn't do the filming portion of this, but maybe he, you know, he had input into it or whatever. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, he probably said it that, no, no, we're not going to do extra scenes or we're not going to do whatever the case is, you know? So, not much of a presence for the Doctor... So let's move on to our companions. Would you like to talk Stephen first or Dodo first? Uh, let's talk about Stephen. Get him over and out of the way with. <laughs> um, oh, God. Yeah, so it's... I'm partially on board with Stephen in this one, okay? Because I've never wanted to kick someone in the balls more than Cyril and the clowns. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most like, annoying, just, oh, make up the rules as you go along, you know, that thing you know when you're kids you know bang I shot you no you didn't you missed and it's like oh like you know just that kind of bullshit I'm on board with him I'm on board with him for that that being said though I think he's no Dodo isn't that great in this story either but I think he's an absolute asshole to her throughout the entirety of the story oh yeah like this this is the thing right and I called this out in the arc as well mm. Stephen seems to have this preconceived notion I don't know where the fuck from because Dodo has done nothing really to deserve it mm. but he has this preconceived notion that Dodo can't do anything right and you shouldn't let her near things mm. like I think I mentioned last week that like you know he's like oh don't let her touch anything she'll bring the whole thing down where the fuck did he get that notion from he's just making this shit up yeah as he goes and in this story He's blaming her for everything and calling her a fool. And I'm like, fuck you, Stephen. And it's like, he gives out to her, but then he doesn't follow the rules of the game himself half the time. Like, He's I, such a hypocrite. <laughs> and there's a thing there that I was just kind of going that, like, he gives out to her for trying to, like, make friends with Sergeant Rugg and uh, try to, you know, he give, for having pity on the, the dolls who we've established are trapped like they're yeah. like f- no i can i would kind of like with dodo's thing is like um like it's a case of one spitting twice shy because we get to see no side of the dolls that indicates that they are also willing to kind of cooperate to help the guys get out you know it'd be one thing like where dodo says like oh like maybe if we like, all kind of work together we can all get out of here type thing but you don't see that from any of the dolls which would kind of indicate that yeah, they want their freedom from the toy maker, but they're willing to step on, over on and over anyone to get it, you know. So, but like, yeah, like, dude, she's trying to, like, she's your teammate in this. You can't treat her that way. And yeah, it's just at the, at this stage of it, it's like every time that Stevens on, I'm going like, like, just please say there's minimal dialogue. Please say there's minimal stuff. But unfortunately, the way that it's written is that Stephen is, you know, the gung-ho Leroy Jenkins of the whole thing. 
yeah, this this story has done nothing to make me like him anymore, unfortunately. Mm. Um, I think he's a massive hypocrite and a total jerk. Mm. So why don't we move on to Dodo? So you just mentioned there how Dodo was trying to connect with the toys and, mm. you know, sort of work together. And I don't hold that against her. I do love the fact that she recognizes and acknowledges the fact that these people were in their position before and lost. Mm. You know, they're not just puppets of the toy maker. They're real people as well, or at least they were. Sorry, or at least they were at one point in time. And I do quite like that about her. It adds this extra level of empathy that's missing from Stephen. And that we only sometimes get from the doctor. Like, you need to have that empathetic centerpiece to your TARDIS crew. And I like that Dodo, they were trying to make Dodo that in this story. Does it work? Maybe not. I think part of the reason why I struggled with, you know, being 100% on her side with that, and this may have been part of your, your issue as well, is the only person we see her actively interacting with properly is obviously Cyril in episode 4 because everything else is the reconstruction Mm. so we don't see little looks and little glances that may have been there in the first three episodes we don't know if there was any of that do you know because like the only person and Cyril's a dick so you know like her interactions with Sergeant Rugg are the only ones that kind of indicate that maybe there is a chance for them all to kind of work together but yeah. I, at one point I was kind of thinking like is she trying to flatter him like, to make friends with him legitimately or has she kind of cottoned on to what's going on and is just kind of using his own nature against him um, a little column A a little column B I think yeah and like it's it's like, as I said like, this is such a weird showing because like this is the time that you would think that the companions would kind of you know band together yeah and like I'll put it to you this way, right? We've had two stories now of Stephen and Dodo. So that's eight, mm-hmm. we've had eight episodes, okay? And for me, this entire eight episodes is that, it seems like that five-minute segment of the Space Museum where Ian and Barbara were at each other's throats because they were so frustrated. Yeah. So, like, yeah. Like, as, as five minutes of that, we have eight episodes of this. Yeah, so, like... Do I agree with her choice to treat the dolls as people and try and get them on their side? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Do I think it's good that she shows empathy? Yes, because we need that in the TARDIS. Should she be derided for it by Stephen? No, like, you know, you can pull her aside and get the point across her. Look, I know these people were captive before us and maybe when we get to the end we can release them but for now Dodo you need to focus you can say it in a nice way and then we also have her sitting in the chair now again obviously we're missing the actual footage we only have the clips that Loose Cannon was able to use so we don't know though we can kind of infer that this was Dodo realising we have no choice. One of us has to sit in the chair to see what it will do. Mm. And so she makes the courageous choice and she does it. And it's treated as her doing something really, really silly by Stephen. Even though she was being really brave to try and get them both out of the situation. Yeah, like it's like, you can okay, you can understand like the initial reaction of like, you know, like what the 
what did you do that for type thing but yeah. then it's like a show appreciation after the fact and you yeah. never you never really see that yeah so in terms of my overall feelings on dodo i kind of liked her last week i still kind of like her i think she's interesting but she's not being given a lot of room to grow or to like put her stamp on on things in a big way you see and th- and that's the thing is that like at this point in time of the companions dodo's the only one that has any potential to kind of hold the interest but unfortunately yeah. she's still very much in first gear yeah i would agree so on to our villains do you want to talk about the toy maker first or his toys we'll do the toys first because the, the i think the toy maker should be kind of left as the overall big bad so there were fucking clowns yep for an entire episode there were fucking clowns and it's a good thing that they were um what is it uh it was a missing episode <laughs> it doesn't matter i don't <laughs> like pictures of clowns i don't like movement of clowns i don't like i don't care i spent a vast majority i will be honest of that episode just looking at the bottom bit where it described what was happening <laughs> because you should have just in read case this. people in case listeners haven't gathered on i am fucking terrified of clowns you should have just read my summary notes well no because i had to actually <laughs> try you know the whole uh, point of this is that we review them but no i fucking hate clowns uh, so at the end i was very much haha fuck you clowns yeah. when they lost and like that's it is that like the i'm kind of much the same as like you know, like, you know clowns fuck you um i'm not as bad as you but at the same time, like, I don't go to my way to kind of, you know, see stuff with clowns in them, you know? Nope. Because these are very much like those, uh, I think like the, I, the way that I can kind of think of them is like that old 1920s grease paint carnival type clown, you know? But even thinking about them is giving me the creeps. So okay. Can, can okay. we move okay. on? All right. Let, let, let's, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> uh, so then we had the playing cards. Yeah, the Hart family. And for any of other people, not to be confused with the Canadian wrestling stable, the Hart Foundation or the Hart family or the Hart dynasty. This is a, the Hart family based on the deck of cards. I have a question for you about the Hart family. Yeah. Because we see later the toy maker use Cyril mm-hmm. as a sort of standalone playing piece by himself. Yeah. Do you think... Cyril is actually part of that group that was originally captured. Like, is he actually part of the group of the King and Queen of Hearts, or is he just inserted into it? See, this is the thing now that I, I, I'm not sure about, and it kind of confused me over the concept of: are the cards and the clowns and everything are they representatives of people that have lost, or is it that they're actually just tools of the toy maker because like it's the same actors being used for the various different roles. I think they're meant to be people who lost. But the bit that I'm curious about, which is why I asked the question, is mm. is it meant to be the same people that he's putting into different situations? Or was it for budget reasons they couldn't hire other people? So they're meant to be different people, but they're I, played by the I, same actor. I think they're meant to be different people played by the same actor. Okay, in that case, my question becomes null and void. Never okay. mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought the playing cards are very Panto-esque. Like they're more comic. Oh, oh yeah, they're more com- more comic relief than an actual threat. Yeah, they were, they were a challenge to work around rather than a threat to. Yeah, anyway, like the clowns were 
a threat because they were changing the rules of the game. Yeah. They were changing the way the course was laid out. The hearts weren't. They were just another group of people trying to figure out the right chair. And it was like, and like the chairs, I think, were the bigger track in that room. Yeah. Like, it was like, like one spins you around and it just essentially, you know, throws you into a wall. While another one shakes you so hard that your head pops off. And one collapses down in on top of itself, crushing you to death. Yep, pretty much. I think the fairy tale characters of Sergeant Rogue and Mrs. Wiggs, they're kind of, I think they're the very same as the, like there's a literally kind of, there's a panto kitchen fight. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that there's anything more differently I can say about them. Other than of all the ones that they encountered, Sergeant Rogue was the one character that seemed to come across most like as in like, please help me. I think, in fairness though, I mean, if you take them together, like, the fact that like when the Celestial Toymaker is like, you know, don't let them get to the TARDIS, you can tell that the two of them are kind of like, okay, fine, we'll, you know, they seemed reluctant to do it purely because he was asking it of them. But then obviously they wanted their own freedom, so that superseded any reluctance that they that they had. Yeah. And then we move on to Cyril. Yeah. Cyril is the character that probably confused me the most. Because if we're going on the principle that all of these toys were previously in Stephen and Dodo's place, where the fuck does Cyril fit in? Because the toy maker described him as Cyril hates to lose. Hmm. And you kind of get the sense that he doesn't lose very often. But if he doesn't lose very often, how is he still trapped by the toy maker? So I do wonder if Cyril is the one captive person who is actually turned fully to the side of the toy maker. I think Cyril's very much of that, you know, it's um, it's better to serve at the right hand of the devil than be in his past type thing. Like, mm-hmm. I think that... Cyril is the type of person that he's getting his entire wish fulfillment and that, you know, I get to play games with people. I get to make all the rules. I get to make the decisions. Uh, I don't I don't think there was a lot of turning required. I think it was... Uh, it was a, that sort of like Douglas uh, Renum thing from IT Crowd. You expect me to do this all day. <laughs> Here, shake my hand. <laughs> um, oh, I just wanted to punch him. Right in the nose. Just that little kind of... Just knuckle wrap right in the nose. Like... And the guy that uh, played him did it so well. And like, you know... I'm fully convinced that the only person that can dress up like a a schoolboy... Sorry, there's two people that I can think that are successful at dressing up as schoolboys. One's Brendan Grace for his bottler character. And two is Angus Young from ACDC. Anyone else, it just looks wrong. (laughs) Whereas this guy, he did it really well. And I was just like, oh, I just want to you know, just just kick you, push you, anything. Just. Do you know what his portrayal reminded me of? What? Do you know the movie A League of Their Own? Yes. The baseball movie. Yeah. There's a character in that, the little boy who travels with them, Stillwell. Yeah. And he just has this constant, you're gonna lose, nah, 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 nah. He has that attitude about him. And Cyril is like that little boy, but being portrayed by... A grown-up. Yeah. Very well, to your point. He's irritating as fuck. <laughs> do, you know, do you know who he is? He's the younger cousin that when you have to go to his birthday party, he's the one that makes all the rules. I don't know that younger cousin because I am the youngest <laughs> cousin in my family. So. <laughs> uh, Were yeah. you just describing me? Is that, is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just because you don't like to let me win doesn't mean that you win. Um, but no, it's like like you like you've been to like like I, I've been to parties of friends where like you know, it's like, or I've been to you know I've been to my cousins' parties or I just happened to be in my cousins when they've had to go to birthday parties and I was like brought along because you know familial duty and it's like, oh god, like the birthday kid can I just like smash his face into the cake, please? <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. So on to the head honcho. Yes. The toy maker himself. Mm-hmm. I found him really interesting. Oh yeah. He's definitely someone that you want to know more about, whether it's to do with his history with the Doctor or whether it's just his own history. Now, I described him and the Doctor together as a bit of a sort of like Picard and Q type situation. He is very Q-like. Oh yeah. In in his portrayal. So I personally I would love to see the toy maker again. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not in the celestial getup. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way, right? Because I think he's a really fascinating character because, like, the toy room is destroyed, but the doctor says that the toy maker will survive. Hmm. We've never met a character like that on this show before. So it's really fucking interesting. I, I think it's like, this is like the first taste of, like a, of a higher power in the universe yeah. of Doctor Who. And it's like, kind of going to a different franchise now in Marvel Comics certain components of the universe have physical entities and, the, and like uh, like eternity uh, if infinity chaos law order all these like universal constants have avatars but they can never be fully destroyed as such type thing you know or they'll, they'll find a way to kind of come back and I think that's the case with the toy maker and any one of those of his ilk is that they're you, you can never destroy them you can push them back for a while but they're a universal constant yeah the other thing about the toy maker that i found really interesting is the game that he set up for the doctor hmm. which on the face of it is like really that <laughs> you want him to play this game for ages um and it seems a bit stupid that he keeps advancing the move counter in a game where like so you were asking me this around was he advancing the move counter or was he just changing the pieces? What the hell was that about? So with the Trilogic game, and I've forgotten the name of it, so the Tower of Hanoi or something is the actual mm. name of it. Um, there is a specific algorithm that will get you to the correct endpoint. So you can play this with one or you can play this with three and up. Mm rings or segments to be moved from a to c by b um and there is a certain number of moves that is the optimal path to get that done so the optimal path to move 10 is 1023 Mm -hmm. so it seems a bit stupid that he was like oh go to move 444 which means that no matter what the doctor was doing even if the doctor was doing the algorithm wrong he's now on optimal move 444 Hmm. which seems a bit stupid (laughs) it's like why are you helping him but then you have to remember that if the doctor finishes first they lose yeah they lose and they stay there if the doctor does it wrong they lose so either one of those works for him the doctor taking forever because he's using the wrong algorithm works for him do I actually just pop into my head there where you're on about optimal route isn't isn't this essentially the game that Caesar plays in Rise of the, or Do, Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it's meant to be this thing to see like how intelligent you are. Can you move things from one to the other? It is, it is essentially that game. Okay. Cool. It's also a game that we played on a work offsite hmm. where we had huge boxes and we had to like run back and forth. Okay. And it was really mental. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, you can move all the pieces around however many times you want to get to the conclusion. But the optimal route for 10 pieces is 1,023 moves. So the doctor could have taken 1,500 moves and still gotten the right answer. But that's not the optimal path, which is why the counter was there in the first place. So I think reading through comments online, people were a bit confused as to why he was helping the doctor by advancing the move counter. And it made the whole idea of the game a bit redundant if the toy maker was going to play half the game himself. But I think the point was two ways the doctors can lose. Finish quickly, which is what the toy maker was trying to make him do, hmm. or do the algorithm wrong. Yeah. Which was the fallback if the doc like if the doctor was going at a nice clip, then the toy maker's fallback was I hope he's doing this wrong, so he'll get to a hundred and twenty or one thousand twenty three and not be finished. Hmm. Oh, the toy maker. I I I do want him to come back. I do. Like I thought he was really cool. Do I'd love to see I would love to see what their first interaction was like because I'd love mm. to see what a pre Barbara and Ian doctor would have been like against the time maker. Yeah, like how did that happen? Like when I'm so curious as to how because like we've always sort of it's kind of been presented up until now that while the doctor and Susan travelled together, it was mostly for scientific purposes. He was doing tests and gathering mm. data and stuff like that. So how in that did he meet the toy maker and beat him once before? Yeah. I'm going to jump the timeline massively mm -hmm. and comment on an episode I watched last weekend because I, need I needed a break from Stephen. I had to watch something else. Yeah. So I jumped way far forward and I watched a Seventh Doctor story that I hadn't watched before, which is The Curse of Fenric. Mm. and in that story as well we have a game being played that the doctor set and I was watching that and kind of going okay Fenric is a different entity but were these two meant to be similar I'm missing years worth of information in between right because I haven't watched the seventh doctor's run up until the curse of Fenric I just wanted to watch it because it seemed interesting so I'm like are they is there meant to be a connection there see i'm not sure because jumping the timeline even further uh mm. until recently we've never no, we always thought this, the toy maker i think was part of was just um, a solo act like a solo entity yeah. but we've recently discovered that he's actually part of like a, a cabal of like these cosmic entities mm. and so maybe fenric was one of one of that group very kind of uh, Guaul vibes I'm, I'm getting <laughs> definitely definitely uh, but um, I but I, if I can't see or if we like there probably is like media out there about the Doctor's first interaction with him but I would love to see the Toy Maker come back and see like uh, a different Doctor the a different variation of the Doctor with different companions to see mm. how that game would go because I could I can tell you hand on heart that if it was Ian and Barbara in this position they would have aced it <laughs> Can you imagine Ian and Barbara having to play a game like that? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no, I miss them so much. No, I'm sad. <laughs> <sighs>
So the character discussion has been put behind us, is done and dusted. So <laughs> we're now going to go into the final section of the podcast. We're going to go into the overall and give our scores and our final thoughts. So Trish, over to you. What are your final thoughts on this and your overall score? So I had heard about this story before. You really can't avoid it. The Celestial Toymaker is a character that a lot of fans, for good or ill, mention when talking about like mm. classic villains that they want to come back or whatever. So I was really curious to watch it. I don't know what I was expecting from it. What I wasn't expecting, though, was for it to be a precursor to move along home from Deep Space Nine. And I was waiting for someone to start singing... Alamorane, mm. count to four. Alamorane, <laughs> then three more. Alamorane, if you can see. Alamorane, you'll come with me. I was waiting for Cyril just to start singing that as he was playing the game. That being said, though, while, I mean, it's obvious they had a budget of nothing, right? Yeah. You mentioned it being kind of panto-esque in terms of the playing cards and Mrs. Wig and the sergeant. Yeah, they're... It's a pantomime set. Yeah. 110%. And there's no getting away from that. That being said, though, I do think it's a better story than Move Along Home. Though, to many, that's not a particular hard thing to beat. Okay, I'm going to go on record now. I quite like Move Along Home. You do? I do. I quite like it. It's one of the first DS9 episodes I ever watched. It's got Quark being Quark. It's got Shop 6. (laughs) 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 <laughs> like I, 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 I'm going to go on record I quite like Move Along Home okay so are you going to teach Alice how to play Alan Moraine <laughs> no because like most things in my life she'll probably be better at it than I am <laughs> <laughs> and plus she's going to have your influence so that's like not required at all so <laughs> <laughs> anyway circling back around Overall, I am going to give this story a three, which is a bit high, I'll be honest, for the quality of the show that it is. Mm. But it was a really interesting concept with a really fascinating villain that opened up the wider Hooniverse and the Doctor's past. And I find that really engaging. However, it had fucking clowns. Fuck off. It had racial slurs that you really can't avoid. Unfortunately, you can't just pretend they're not there. They're literally right mm. in the face. And the doctor himself was hardly in it. So those three things. So clowns, it was all, it was automatically going to be docked points based purely on the clowns. And then the racial slurs and the lack of Hartnell brought it down for me to a three. Which I think some people would still think is a bit too high. But concept I thought was brilliant. And see, like that's a thing that... Um, we've kind of because like we have no criteria for the point system that we have. No, God, it's, it's completely it's, arbitrary. It, yeah, yeah it, it's yeah, exactly. There's no like you know, oh, does it how like does it have good prisons by the doctor? Well, that's half a point. Does it have whatever? It's like it's our feelings and our recommendation side of things. And I kind of again, I was like, uh, it's it's not it's I I landed on a three as well because it's not it's not as low as two point five. But it's not as high as a 3.5. Oh, God, no. Uh, uh, so I kind of, like, you know, went nice and safe in the middle with a 3. And, again, it's that I 
there's a huge missed opportunity here and like we we go, we know it's in the reasons because of the trivia section about you know that like I'm just, I'm just gonna call him a prick <laughs> John Wiles and his uh, decision making process is that we could have had a real sort of like a God versus the devil type thing with the with the Doctor and um, no I'm not saying the Doctor is God because like you know he's not predict well no I'm not getting into that um, we we could have had the Knight versus Death from the Seventh Seal that type of thing yeah or actually more apt Bill and Ted versus Death yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you've sunk my battleship um, but like it introduced that amazing concept of cosmic entities that like I think up until now the villain that probably put the most fear into the Doctor was the Animus from the Web Planet yeah in the sense of like it's this just creature that once it lands on a planet it you know puts it digs into the roots and it takes over and it spreads its influence and like there's an awful lot of parallels between this and Star Trek because you know with you know, <laughs> Animus we had Skin of Evil with this we've got you know Move Along Home um, and Q and Q yes absolutely and Q um, so like no the concept and the world building is fantastic the and not just the concept of the character but the concept of throwing the guys into these various different scenarios based on what are like you know oh they're child you know entertainment all this type of stuff but they've got a deadly edge to it i like stuff like that um it's very much it's a this is more this is a very twilight zone episode of the of doctor who i think yeah i can see that yeah in terms of the music the direction the even the costuming and all that kind of stuff um but we do run into what are now becoming the familiar problems of steven um dodo is as i said she's in first gear she really needs to get out of second gear now at this stage and it's frustrating the that there's also a huge shift in tone throughout the story like you know with the first one it's a lot darker because of how sinister the clowns are like they're not quite pennywise level of fucking thing you know but they're just they're their intent is malicious yeah clowns and then we go on to episode four, which we have Cyril. But episode two and three are a lot more comedic. And it would have been grand if they had stayed comedic, but if there was still that sinister edge to them. Mm. And I think the only time there's a real sinister edge is when the chair crushes the Hart family. Yeah. And I get like, so there's a lot of missed opportunities here for direction in terms of like, you know, more time between the Doctor and uh, the Toymaker. There would like the when Rug and uh, Sergeant Rug and Mrs. Wiggs are trapped with the dancing ballerinas. Again, that would have been like an amazing Twilight Zone episode of like you know like they're now stuck for eternity in this never-ending dance, and it's like that's that's actually quite terrifying. But again, because we don't see the like I've I've always tried to hold not not hold the fact that the episodes are missing against the overall scoring. But I'm I hold it against in this one because the audio doesn't signify that Rug and Wiggs know exactly what they're in for for the rest of their existence if the toy maker deems to kind of put them back in the toy box yeah you, you can really only judge based on what we've seen and yeah. while we can infer a lot we infer based on the audio and if the audio doesn't make it clear then there's not really yeah. much you can go on with yeah. that which isn't a loose cannon fault it's mm, just a no and i know the concept of the toy maker is great but the reason the toy maker is so good is because of michael goff mm. as great as michael goff is as alfred and it's it's very it's very tough for an actor to be a, an amazing heroic character mm. and an equally 
good villain character it's like Christopher Lee is like he's a fantastic villain but as a hero it's like I'm sorry man you're still shifty as fuck I can't trust you um, Fair. whereas like unlike say Peter Cushing who's Christopher Lee, one of Christopher Lee's best friends is incredibly convincing as Grand Moff Tarkin but is also equally as convincing as Van Helsing in the Hammer Horror movies where he routinely kills Christopher Lee so, you know. <laughs> um, so like but Michael Goff is of that vein where it's like he's fantastic as Alfred you know he's just like kind of like I. that's why it was such a shock whenever I see him play an asshole and where it's here it's like he's just his aura is nothing but malicious intent Yeah, and that's it, really cool that's really cool it really was an amazing character creation for him I just wish they had him wearing something else <laughs> and much like Peter Butterworth playing the monk it's mm. like he's the measuring stick now for those characters. Oh yeah, because like we we see other recurring characters that are obviously recast for different reasons, and various versions of them are some are great, and like some are on par with the original, some are not as good as the original. But I have to see more stuff with the toy maker to see the performance wise. But at the moment, Michael Goff is a contributing factor to the high score of this one. Brilliant. So we once again are joined on our score of three. Yep, absolutely. Only the second time this season we've shared the same score. <laughs> oh no, I lie. It's the third time. Never mind. Yeah. I can't read. <laughs> can't read my own notes. I know that sounded like nuts, so I'm not going to use an accent anymore when I read the notes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, guys, that is it for the Celestial Toymaker. We hope you enjoyed it. So, next week, we are going to be moving into a different area. We're going to be moving to the Wild West, and we're going to talk about the gunfighters. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye.